midnight hour. And so you have come to share the warmth of my fire once more. <laughs> Welcome. Sit. Are you comfortable? The clock on the mantle has struck twelve, and so begins the midnight hour. The authors you're about to hear will freeze your blood with the tales of evil spirits, demonic forces, and murderous madmen. <laughs> and we begin tonight's episode with an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Beers. A man stood upon a railroad bridge in northern Alabama, looking down into the swift water twenty feet below. The man's hands were behind his back, the wrists bound with a cord. A rope closely encircled his neck. It was attached to a stout cross timber above his head, and the slack fell to the level of his knees. Some loose boards laid upon the, the ties supporting the rows of the railroad supplied a foot footing for him and his executioners. Two private soldiers of the Federal Army directed by a sergeant who in civil life may have been a deputy sheriff. At a short remove upon the same temporary platform was an officer in the uniform of his rank armed. He was captain. A sentinel at each end of the bridge stood with his rifle in the position known as support. That is to say vertical in front of the left shoulder, the hammer resting on the forearm thrown straight across the chest. A formal and unnatural position, enforcing an erect carriage of the body. It did not appear to be the duty of these two men to know what was occurring at the centre of the bridge. They merely blockaded the two ends of the footplanking that traversed it. Beyond one of the sentinels, nobody was in sight. The railroad ran straight away into a forest for a hundred years, then, curving, was lost to view. Doubtless there was an outpost further along. The other bank of the stream was open ground, a gentle slope topped with a stockade of vertical tree trunks, loopholed for rifles with a signal embra embrasure through which protruded the muzzle of a brass cannon commanding the bridge. Midway up the slope between the bridge and the fort were the spectators, a single company of infantry in line at parade rest, the butts of their rifles on the ground, the barrels inclining slightly backward against the right shoulder. Their hands crossed upon the stock. A lieutenant stood at the, at the right of the line, the point of his sword upon the ground, his left hand resting upon his right. Accepting the, the group of four at the centre of the bridge, not a man moved. The company faced the bridge, staring stonily, motionless. The sentinels facing the banks of the stream might have been statues to adorn the bridge. The captain stood with folded arms, silent, observing the work of his subordinates, but making no sign. Death is a dignitary who, when he comes announced, is to be received with formal manifestations of respect, even by those most familiar with him. In the code of military etiquette, silence and fixity are forms of deference. The man who was engaged in being hanged was apparently about 35 years of age. He was a civilian, if one might judge from his habit, which was that of a planter. His features were good, a straight nose, firm mouth, broad forehead, 
from which his long, dark hair was combed straight back, falling behind his ears to the collar of his well-fitting frock coat. He wore a moustache and pointed beard, but no whiskers. His eyes were large and dark grey, and he had a kindly expression which one would hardly have expected in one whose neck was in in the hemp. Evidently, this was no vulgar, vulgar assassin. The liberal military code makes provision for hanging many kinds of persons and gentlemen are not excluded. The preparations being complete, the two private soldiers stepped aside and each drew away the plank upon which he had been standing. The sergeant turned to the captain, saluted and placed himself immediately behind that officer, who in turn moved apart one pace. These movements left the condemned man and the sergeant standing on the two ends of the same plank, which spanned three of the cross ties of the bridge. The end upon which the civilian stood almost, but not quite, reached a fourth. This plank had been held in place by the weight of the captain. It was now held by that of the sergeant. At a signal from the former, the latter would step aside, the plank would tilt and the condemned man would go down between the two ties. The arrangement condemned itself to to his judgment as simple and effective. His face had not been covered nor his eyes bandaged. He looked a moment at his unsteadfast footing, then let his gaze wander to the swirling water of the stream racing madly beneath his feet. A piece of dancing driftwood caught his attention and his eyes followed it down the current. How slowly it appeared to move. What a sluggish stream. He closed his eyes in order to fix his last thoughts upon his wife and children. The water touched to, to gold by the early sun, the brooding mists under the, under the banks at some distance down the stream, the fort, the soldiers, the piece of drift, all had distracted him. Now he became conscious of a new disturbance. Striking through the thought of his dear ones was sound which he could neither ignore nor understand. A sharp, distinct, metallic percussion like the stroke of a blacksmith's hammer upon the anvil. It had the same ringing quality. He wondered what it was and whether immeasurably distant or nearby. It seemed both. His recurrence was regular but as slow as the tolling of death knell. He awaited each new stroke with impatience and, he knew not why, apprehension. The intervals of silence grew progressively longer. The delays became maddening. With their greater infrequency, the sounds increased in strength and sharpness. They hurt his ear like the trust of a knife. He feared he would shriek. What he heard was the ticking of his watch. He unclosed his eyes and saw again the water below him. If I could free my hands, he thought, I might throw off the noose and spring into the stream. By diving, I could evade the bullets and, swimming vigorously, reach the bank. Take to the woods and get away home. My home, thank God, is as yet outside their lines. My wife and little ones are still beyond the invaders' farthest advance. As these thoughts, which have here to be set down in words, were flashed into the doomed man's brain rather than evolved from it, the captain nodded to the sergeant. The sergeant stepped aside. Peyton Farquhar was a well-to-do planter of an old and highly respected Alabama family. Being a slave owner, and like other slave owners a politician, he was naturally a, a, an original secessionist and ardently devoted to the Southern cause. 
Circumstances of an imperious nature, which it is unnecessary to relate here, had prevented him from taking service with that gallant army which had fought the disastrous campaigns ending with the fall of Corinth, and he chafed under the inglorious restraint, longing for the release of his energies, the, the larger life of the soldier, the opportunity for distinction. That opportunity, he felt, would come as it comes to all in wartime. Meanwhile, he did what he could. No service was too humble for him to perform in the aid of the South, no adventure too perilous for him to undertake if consistent with the character of a civilian who was at heart a soldier and who in good faith and without too much qualification assented to at least a part of the frankly villainous dictum that all is fair in love and war. One evening, while Farquhar and his wife were sitting on a rustic bench near the entrance to his grounds, a grey-clad soldier rode up to the gate and asked for a drink of water. Mrs Farquhar was only too happy to serve him with her own white hands. While she was fetching the water, her husband approached the dusty horseman and inquired eagerly for news from the front. "'The Yanks are prepare a repair in the railways,' said the man, "'and are getting ready for another advance. "'They have reached the Owl Creek Bridge, but put it in order and built a stockade on the north bank. The commandant has issued an order which is posted everywhere, declaring that any civilian caught interfering with the railroad, its bridges, tunnels or trains will be summarily hanged. I saw the order. How far is it to the Owl Creek Bridge? Farquhar asked. About 30 miles. Is there no force on this side of the creek? Only a picket post half a mile out on the railroad and a single sentinel at the end of the bridge. Suppose a man, a civilian and student of hanging, should elude the picket post and perhaps get the better of the sentinel, said Farquhar, smiling. What could he accomplish? The soldier reflected. I was there a month ago, he replied. I observed that the flood of last winter had lodged a great quantity of driftwood against the wooden pier at at this end of the bridge. It's now dry and would burn like tinder. The lady had now brought the water which the soldier drank. He thanked her ceremoniously, bowed to her husband and rode away. An hour later, after nightfall, he repassed the plantation going northward in the direction from which he had come. He was a federal scout. As patron Farquhar fell straight downward through the bridge, he lost consciousness and was as one already dead. From this state, he was awakened ages later, it seemed to him, by the pain of a sharp pressure upon his throat, followed by a sense of suffocation. Keen, poignant agonies seemed to shoot from his neck downwards through every fibre of his body and limbs. These pains appeared to flash along well-defined lines of ramification and to beat with an inconceivably rapid periodicity. They seemed like streams of pulsating fire heating him to an intolerable temperature. As to his head, he was conscious of nothing but a feeling of fullness, of congestion. These sensations were unaccompanied by thought. The intellectual part of his nature was already effaced. He had power only to feel, and feeling was torment. He was conscious of motion, encompassed in a luminous cloud of which he was now merely the fiery heart without material substance he swung through unthinkable 
arcs of oscillation like a, a vast pendulum. Then all at once, with terrible sa- suddenness, the light about him shot upward with the noise of a loud splash. A frightful roaring was in his ears, and all was cold and dark. The power of thought was restored. He knew that the rope had broken and he had fallen into the stream. There was no additional strangulation. The, the noose about his neck was already suffocating him and kept the water from his lungs. To die of hanging at the bottom of a river, the idea seemed to, seemed to him ludicrous. He opened his eyes in the darkness and saw above him a gleam of light. But how distant, how inaccessible. He was still sinking for the light became fainter and fainter until he was a mere glimmer. Then it began to grow and brighten and he knew he was rising toward the surface. Knew it with reluctance for he was now very comfortable. To be hanged and drowned, he thought. That is not so bad but I do not wish to be shot, no. I will not be shot, that is not fair. He was not conscious of an effort, but a sharp pain in his wrist apprised him that he was trying to free his hands. He gave the struggle his attention, as an idler might observe the fear of a juggler without interest in the outcome. What splendid effort, what magnificent, what superhuman strength. Ah, that was a fine endeavour. Bravo, the cord fell away. His arms parted and floated upward, the hands dimly seen on each side in the growing light. He watched them with a, a new interest as first one and then the other pounced upon the noose at his neck. They tore it away and thrust it fiercely aside, his undulations resembling those of a water snake. Put it back! Put it back! He thought he shouted those words to his hands for the undoing of his noose had been succeeded by the direst pain that he had yet experienced. His neck ached horribly. His brain was on fire. His heart, which had been fluttering faintly, gave a great leap, trying to force itself out of his mouth. His whole body was racked and wrenched with an insupportable anguish, but his disobedient hands gave no heed to to the command. They beat the water vigorously with quick downward strokes, forcing him to the surface. He felt his head emerge. His eyes were blinded by the sunlight. His chest expanded convulsively, and with a supreme and, cr- and crowning agony, his lungs engulfed a great drought of air, which instantly he expelled in a shriek. He was now in full possession of his physical senses. They were indeed pre- preternaturally keen and alert. Something in the awful disturbance of his organic system had so exalted and refined him that they made record of things never before perceived. He felt the ripples upon his face and heard their separate sounds as they struck. He looked at the forest on the bank of the stream, saw the individual trees, the leaves and the veining of each leaf. He saw the very insects upon them, the locusts, the brilliant-bodied flies, the grey spiders stretching their webs from twig to twig. He noted the prismatic colours in all the dewdrops upon the million blades of grass, the humming of the gnats that danced above the eddies of the stream, he beating, the beating of the dragonfly's wings, the strokes of the water spider's legs, like oars which had lifted their boat. All these made audible music. A fish slid along beneath his eyes and he heard the rush of his body parting the water. He had come to the surface facing down the stream. In a moment... The visible world but seemed to wheel slowly around, himself the pivotal point, and he saw the bridge, the fort, the soldiers upon the bridge, the captain, the sergeant, the two privates, his executioners. They were in silhouette, 
against the blue sky. They shouted and gesticulated, pointing at him. The captain had drawn his pistol but did not fire. The others were unarmed. Their movements were grotesque and horrible. Their forms gigantic. Suddenly he heard a, a sharp report and something struck the water smartly within a few inches of his head, spattering his face with spray. He heard a second report and saw one of the sentinels with his rifle at his shoulder, a light cloud of blue smoke rising from the muzzle. The man in the water saw the eye of the man on the bridge gazing into his own through the sights of the rifle. He observed that it was a grey eye and remembered having read that grey eyes were keenest and that all famous marksmen had them. Nevertheless, this one had missed. A counterswell had caught Farquhar and turned him half round. He was again looking at the forest of the, on the bank opposite the fort. A sound of a clear, high voice in a monotonous sing-song now rang out behind him and came across the water with a distinctness that pierced and subdued all other sounds, even the beating of the ripples in his ears. Although no soldier... He had frequented camps enough to know the dread significance of that deliberate, drawling, aspirated chant. The lieutenant on shore was taking a part in the morning's work. How coldly and pitilessly, with what an even, calm intonation, presaging and enforcing tranquility in the men, with what accurately measured interval fell those cruel words. Company! Attention! Shoulder arms! Ready! Aim! Fire! Farquhar dived, dived as deeply as he could. The water roared in his ears like the voice of Niagara. Yet he heard the dull thunder of the volley and rising again toward the surface met shining bits of metal, singularly flattened, oscillating slowly downward. Some of them touched him on the face and hands, then fell away, continuing their descent. One lodged between his collar and neck. It was uncomfortably warm and he snatched it out. As he rose to the surface, grasping for breath, he saw that he had been a long time underwater. He was perceptibly farther downstream, nearer to safety. The soldiers had almost finished reloading. The metal ramrods flashed all at once in the sunshine as they were drawn from the barrels turned in the air and thrust into their sockets. The two sentinels fired again independently and and ineffectually. The hunted man saw all this over his shoulder. He was now swimming vigorously with the current. His brain was as energetic as his arms and legs, he thought with a rapidity of lightning. The officer, he reasoned, will not make that, that martinet's error a second time. It is as easy to dodge a volley as a single shot. He has probably already given the command to fire at will. God help me, I cannot dodge them all. An appalling splash within two yards of him was followed by a loud, rushing sound. Diminuendo, which seemed to travel back through the air to the fort and died in an explosion which stirred the very river into its depths. A rising sheet of water curved over him, fell down upon him, blinded him, strangled him. The cannon had taken an, a, a hand in the game. As he shook his head free from the commotion of the smitten water, he heard the def- deflected shot humming through the air-, air ahead, and in an instant it was cracking and smashing the, the branches in the forest beyond. They will not do that again, he thought. The next time they will use a charge of grape, I must keep my eye upon the gun. The smoke will ap- ap- 
apprise me. The report arrives too late. It lags behind the missile. That is a good gun. Suddenly he felt himself whirled around and around, spinning like a top. The water, the banks, the forest, the now distant bridge, fort and men, all were commingled and blurred. Objects were represented by their colours only. Circular horizontal streaks of colour. That was all he saw. He had been caught in a vortex and was being whirled on with a velocity of advance and gyration that made him giddy and sick. In a few moments he was flung upon the gravel at the foot of the left bank of the stream, the southern bank, and behind a projecting point which concealed him from his enemies. The sudden arrest of his motion, the abrasion of one of his hands on the gravel restored him, and he wept with delight. He dug his fingers into the sand, threw it over himself in handfuls and audibly blessed it. It looked like diamonds, rubies, emeralds. He could think of nothing beautiful which it did not resemble. The trees upon the bank were giant garden plants. He noted a definite order in their arrangement, inhaled the fragrance of their blooms. A strange roseate light shone through the spaces among their their trunks and the wind made in their branches the music of aeolian harps he had not wished to perfect his escape he was content to remain in that enchanting spot until retaken the whiz and a rattle of grape shot among the branches high above his head roused him from his dream the baffled cannoneer had fired him a random farewell he sprang to his feet rushed up the sloping bank and plunged into the forest. All that day he travelled, laying his course by the rounding sun. The forest seemed interminable. Nowhere did he discover a break in it, not even a woodman's road. He had not known that he lived in so wild a region. There was something uncanny in the revelation. By nightfall he was fatigued, footsore, famished. The thought of his wife and children urged him on. At last he found a road which led him in what he knew to be the right direction. It was as wide and straight as a city street, yet it seemed untravelled. No fields bordered it, no dwelling anywhere, not so much as the barking of a dog suggested human habitation. The black bodies of the trees formed a straight wall on both sides, terminating on the horizon in a point, like a diagram in a lesson in perspective. Overhead, as he looked up through this rift in the wood, shone great golden stars, looking unfamiliar and grouped in strange constellations he was sure they were arranged in some order which had a secret and malign significance the wood on either side was full of singular noises among which once twice and again he distinctly heard whispers in an unknown tongue his neck was in pain and lifting his hand to it found it horribly swollen he knew that it had a circle of black where the rope had bruised it his eyes felt congested He could no longer close them. His tongue was swollen with thirst. He relieved its fever by thrusting it forward from between his teeth into the cold air. How softly the turf had carpeted the untravelled avenue. He could no longer feel the, the roadway beneath his feet. Doubtless, despite his suffering, he had fallen asleep while walking. For now he sees another scene. Perhaps he has merely recovered from a delirium. He stands at the gate of his own home. All is as he left it, and all bright and beautiful in the morning sunshine. He must have travelled the entire night as he pushes open the gate and 
passes up the wide white walk. He sees a flutter of female garments. His wife, looking fresh and cool and sweet, steps down from the veranda to meet him. At the bottom of the steps, she stands waiting with a smile of ineffable joy, an attitude of matchless grace and dignity. Ah, how beautiful she is. He springs forwards with extended arms. As he is about to clasp her, he feels a stunning blow upon the back of his neck. A blinding white light blazes all about him with a sound like the shock of a cannon. Then all is darkness and silence. Peyton Farquhar was dead. His body with a broken neck swung gently from side to side beneath the timbers of the Owl Creek Bridge. Welcome back to the Midnight Hour. Shall we get to another story? <laughs> I think so too. This is The Monkey's Paw by W.W. W. Jacobs. Be careful what you wish for. You may receive it. Without the night it was cold and wet. But in the small parlour of the Burnham Villa, the blinds were drawn and the fire burned brightly. Father and son were at chess. The former, who possessed ideas about the game involving radical chances, put his king into such sharp and unnecessary perils that it even provoked comment from the white-haired old lady knitting placidly by the fire. Hark at the wind, said Mr. White, who, having been a, had seen a fatal mistake after it was too late, was amiably desirous of preventing his son from seeing it. I'm listening, said the latter, grimly surveying the board as he stretched out his hand. Check. I should hardly think that he's come tonight, said his father, with his hand poised over the board. Mate, replied the son. That's the worst of living so far out, bawled Mr. White with sudden and unlooked-for violence. Of all the beastly, slushy, out-of-the-way places to live in, this is the worst... Parts are bog and the roads are torrent. I don't know what people are thinking about. I suppose because only two houses in the road are let, they think it doesn't matter. Never mind, dear, said his wife soothingly. Perhaps you'll win the next one. Mr White looked up sharply, just in time to intercept a knowing glance between mother and son. The words died away on his lips and he hid a guilty grin in his thin grey beard. There he is, said Herbert White as the gate banged loudly with heavy footsteps and came toward the door. The old man rose with hospitable haste and opening the door was heard condoling with with the new arrival. The new arrival also condoled with himself so that Mrs White said tut-tut and coughed gently as her husband entered the room followed by a tall burly man, beady of iron, Rubicon of visage. Sergeant Major Morris, he said, introducing him. At the third glass, his eyes got brighter and he began to walk. The little family circle regarding with eager interest this visitor from distant parts as he squared his broad shoulders in the chair and spoke of wild scenes and doughty deeds of wars and plagues and strange peoples. Twenty-one years of it,' said Mr. White, nodding as his wife, uh, wife and son. 
When he went away, he was a slip of a youth in the warehouse. Now look at him. He don't look to have taken much harm, said Mrs. White politely. I'd like to go to India myself, said the old man, just to look around a bit, you know. Better where you are, said the sergeant major, shaking his head. He put down the empty glass and, sighing softly, shook it again. I should like to see those old temples and farkas and jugglers, said the old man. What was that you started telling me the other day about a monkey's paw or something, Morris? Nothing, said the soldier hastily. Leastways, nothing worth hearing. Monkey's paw, said Mrs. White curiously. Well, that's just a bit of what you might call magic, perhaps, said the sergeant major offhandedly. His three listeners leaned forward eagerly. The visitor absent-mindedly put his empty glass to his lips and then set it down again. His host filled it for him again. To look at, said the sergeant major, fumbling in his pocket, it's just an ordinary little paw dried to a mummy. He took something out of his pocket and proffered it. Mrs. White drew back with a grimace, but her son, taking it, examined it curiously. And what is there special about it, inquired Mr. White, as he took it from his son and, having examined it, placed it upon the table. And had a spell put on it by an old farker, said the sergeant major. A very holy man, he wanted to show that fate ruled people's lives and that those who interfered with it did, did so to their sorrow. He put a spell on it so that three separate men could each have three wishes from it. His manners were so impressive that his hearers were conscious that their light laughter had jarred somewhat. Well, why don't you have three, sir? said Herbert White cleverly. The soldier regarded him the way that middle ages want to regard presumptuous youth. I have, he said quietly, and his blotchy face whitened. Did you really have the three wishes granted? asked Mrs. White. I did, said the sergeant major, and his glass tapped against his strong teeth. Has anybody else wished? persisted the old lady. The first man had his three wishes, yes, was the reply. I don't know what the first two were, but the third was for death. That's how I got the paw. His tones were so grave that a hush fell upon the group. If you've had your three wishes, it's no good to you now, Morris said the old man at last. What do you keep it for? The soldier shook his head. Fancy, I suppose, he said slowly. I did have some idea of selling it, but I don't think, it, I, don't think I will. It has caused me enough mischief already. Besides, people won't buy. They think it's a fairy tale, some of them. And He took the paw and dangling it between his forefinger and thumb, suddenly threw it upon the fire. White, with a slight cry, stooped down and snatched it off. Better let it burn, said the soldier solemnly. If you don't want it, Morris, said the other, give it to me. I won't, said his friend doggedly. I threw it on the fire. I'll, if you keep it, don't blame me for what happens. Pitch it on the fire like a, like a sensible man. The other shook his head and examined his possession closely. How do you do it, he inquired. Hold it up in your right hand and wish aloud, said the sergeant major. But I warn you of the consequences. Sounds like the Arabian Nights, said Mrs. White. She rose and began to set the supper. Don't you think you might wish for four pairs of hands for me? Her husband drew the talisman from his pocket and all three burst into laughter as the sergeant major, with a look of alarm on his face, caught him by the arm. If you must wish, he said gruffly, wish for something sensible. Mr. White dropped it back in his pocket and, placing chairs, 
motion his friend to the table. In the business of supper, the talisman was partly forgotten, and afterward the three sat listening in an enthralled fashion to a second instalment of the soldier's adventures in India. He has been telling us, said Herbert, as the door closed behind their guest, just in time to catch the last train, we shan't make much out of it. Did you give anything for it, father? inquired Mrs. White, regarding her husband closely. A trifle, he said, colouring slightly. He didn't want it, but I made him take it. He pressed me again to throw it away. Likely, said Herbert, with pretended horror. Why, we're going to be rich and famous and happy. Wish to be an emperor, father, to begin with, then you can't be henpecked. He darted around the table, pursued by the maligned Mrs. White, armed with an antimacassar. Mr. White took the paw from his pocket and eyed it dubiously. I don't know what to wish for, and that's a fact, he said slowly. It seems to me I've got all I want. If you only cleared the house, you'd be quite happy, wouldn't you, said Herbert, with his hand on his shoulder. Well, wish for two hundred pounds, then. That'll just do it. His father, smiling shamefacedly at his own credulity, held up the talisman. As his son, with solemn face, somewhat marred by a wink at his mother, sat down and struck a few impressive chords. I wish for two hundred pounds, said the old man distinctly. A fine crash from the piano greeted his words, interrupted by a shuddering cry from the old man. His wife and son ran toward him. It moved, he cried, with a glance of disgust at the object as it lay on the floor. As I wished, it twisted in my hand like a snake. Well, I don't see the money, said his son, as he picked it up and placed it on the table, and, and I bet I never shall. Must have been your fancy, father, said his wife, regarding him anxiously. I sat down by the fire again while the two men finished their pipes outside. The wind was higher than ever. And the old man started nervously at the sound of a door banging upstairs. A silence, unusual and depressing, settled on all three, which lasted until the, the old couple rose to retire for the rest of the night. I expect you'll find the cash tied up in a big bag in the middle of your bed, said Herbert, as he bade them good night. And something horrible squatting on top of your wardrobe, watching you as you pocket your ill-gotten gains. He sat alone in the darkness, gazing at the dying fire and seeing faces in it. The last was so horrible and so simian that he gazed at it in amazement. It got so vivid that, with a little uneasy laugh, he felt on the table for a glass containing a little water to throw over it. His hand grasped the monkey's paw, and with a little sh shiver, he wiped his hand on his coat and went up to bed. In the brightness of the wintry sun next morning, as it streamed over the breakfast table, he laughed at his fears. There was an air of prosaic wholesomeness about the room, which it lacked on the previous night, and the dirty, shriveled little paw was pitched on the sideboard with a carelessness which betokened no great belief in its virtues. Suppose all old soldiers are the same, said Mrs. White. The idea of our listening to such nonsense. How could wishes be granted in these days? And if they could, how could 200 pounds hurt you, father? I drop it on his head from the sky, said the frivolous Herbert. Morris said the things happened so naturally, said his father, that you might, if you wished, attribute it to coincidence. Well, don't break into the money before I come back, said Herbert as he rose from the table. I'm afraid I'll turn you into a mean, avaricious man and we shall have to disown you. His mother laughed and, following him to the door, watched him down the road and returned to the breakfast table, was very happy at the expense of her husband's cred credulity. 
all of which did not prevent her from scurrying to the door at the postman's knock, nor prevent her from referring somewhat shortly to retired sergeant majors of bibulous habit when she found that the post brought a tailor's bill. Herbert will have some more of his funny remarks, I expect, when he comes home, she said as they sat at dinner. I dare say, said Mr. White, pouring himself out some beer. But for all that, the thing moved in my hand. That I'll swear to. You thought it did, said the old lady soothingly. I say it did, replied the, the other. There was no doubt, no thought about it. I had just... What's the matter? His wife made no reply. She was watching the mysterious movements of a man outside who, peering in an undecided fashion at the house, appeared to be trying to make up his mind to enter. In mental connection with the £200, she noticed that the stranger was well-dressed and wore a silk hat of glossy newness. Three times he paused at the gate and then walked on again. The fourth time he stood with his hand upon it and then, with sudden resolution, flung it open and walked up the path. Mrs White, at the same moment, placed her hands behind her and, hurriedly unfastening the strings of her apron, put that useful article of apparel beneath the cushion of her chair. She brought the stranger, who seemed ill at ease, into the room. He gazed at her furtively and listened in uh, a preoccupied fashion as the old lady apologised for the appearance of the room and her husband's coat, a garment which he usually reserved for the garden. She then waited as patiently as her sex would permit for him to, to breach his business, but he was at first strangely silent. I, I was asked to call, he said at last and stooped and picked a piece of cotton from his trousers. It came from Moore and Megan's. The old lady started. Is anything the matter? She asked breathlessly. Has anything happened to Herbert? What is it? What is it? Is he hurt? demanded the mother wildly. The visitor bowed in assent. Badly hurt, he said quietly, but he is not in any pain. Oh, thank God, said the old woman, clasping her hands. Thank God for that. Thank... She broke off as the sinister to many of the assurance dawned on her and she saw the awful confirmation of her fears in the other's averted face. She caught her breath and turned to her slow-witted husband, laid a trembling hand on his. There was a long silence. He was caught in the machinery, said the visitor at length in a low voice. Caught in the machinery, repeated Mr. White in a dazed fashion. Yes. He sat staring out the window taking his wife's hand between his own, pressed it as he had been want to do in their old courting days nearly 40 years before. He was the only one left to us, he said, turning gently to, to the visitor. It is hard. The other coughed and rising, walked slowly to the window. The firm wishes me to convey their sincere sympathy with you in your great loss, he said, without looking around. I beg that you will understand I am only their servant and merely obeying orders. There was no reply. The old woman's face was white, her eyes staring and her breath inaudible. On the husband's face was a look such as his friend the sergeant might have carried into his first action. I was to say that Moore and Megan's disclaim all responsibility, continued the other. They admit lo no liability at all, but in consideration of his son's services, they wish to present you with a certain sum as compensation. Mr. White dropped his, his wife's hand and rising to his feet, gazed with a look of horror at his visitor. His dry lips shaped the words. How much? Two hundred pounds was the answer. Unconscious of his wife's shriek, the old man smiled faintly, put out his hands like a, slightless, a sightless man and dropped a senseless heap to the floor. 
In the huge new cemetery, some two miles distant, the old people buried their dead came back to the house, steeped in shadows and silence. It was all over so quickly that at first they could hardly realise it and remained in a state of expectation as though something else to happen, something else which was to lighten this load, too heavy for old hearts to bear. But the days passed and expectations gave way to resignation. The hopeless resignation of the old, sometimes miscalled apathy. Sometimes they hardly exchanged a word, for now they had something to talk about and their days were long to weariness. It was about a week after that that the old man, waking suddenly in the night, stretched out his hand and found himself alone. The room was in darkness and the sound of subdued weeping came from the window. He raised himself in bed and listened. Come back, he said tenderly, you will be cold. It's colder for my son, said the old woman and wept afresh. The sounds of a sob sighed away in on his ears. The bed was warm and his eyes heavy with sleep. He dozed fitfully and then slept until a sudden wild cry from his wife woke him from a start. The paw, she cried, cried wildly. The monkey's paw. He started up in alarm. Where? Where is it? What's the matter? She cried and laughed again. Benny over kissed his cheek. I just thought of it, she said hysterically. Why didn't I think of it before? Why didn't you think of it? think of what he questioned the other two wishes she replied rapidly we've only had one was that not enough he demanded fiercely no she cried triumphantly we'll have one more go down and get it quickly and wish our boy alive again the man sat in bed and flung the bedclothes from his quaking limbs good god you're mad he cried aghast get it she panted get it quickly and wish oh my boy my boy her husband struck a match and lit the candle. Get back to bed, he said it unsteadily. You don't know what you are saying. We had the first wish granted, said the old woman feverishly. Why not the second? A coincidence, stammered the old man. Go get it and wish, cried his wife, quivering with excitement. The old man turned and regarded her and his voice shook. He has been dead ten days and besides he... I will not tell you else, but... I could only recognise him by his clothing. If he was too terrible for you to see then, how now? Bring him back, cried the old woman and dragged him towards the door. Do you think I fear the child I have nursed? Went down in the darkness and felt his way to the parlour and then to the mantelpiece. The talisman was in its place and a horrible fear that the unspoken wish might bring his mutilated son before him. Ere he, he could escape from the room, seized, seized up on him. He caught his breath and he found that he had lost the direction of the door. His brow cold with sweat. He felt his way round the table and groped along the wall until he found himself in the small passage with the unwholesome thing in his hand. Even his wife's face seemed changed as he entered the room. It was white and expectant and to his fears seemed to have an unnatural look upon it. He was afraid of her. Wish, she cried in a strong voice. It's foolish and wicked, he faltered. Wish, repeated his wife. He raised his hand. I wish my son alive again. The talisman fell to the floor and he regarded it fearfully. Then he sank trembling into a chair as the old woman, with burning eyes, walked to the window and raised the blind. He sat until he was chilled with the cold, glancing occasionally at the figure of the old woman peering through the window. The candle end 
which had burnt below the rim of the china candlestick, was throwing pulsating shadows on the ceiling and walls, until with a flicker larger than the rest, it expired. The old man, with an unspeakable sense of relief at the failure of the talisman, crept back to his bed, and a minute afterward the old woman came silently and apathetically beside him. Neither spoke, but as silently listened to the ticking of the clock. A stair creaked, and a squeaky mouse scurried noisily through the wall. The darkness was oppressive, and after lying for some time screwing up his courage, he took the box of matches, and striking one went downstairs for a candle. At the foot of the stairs, the match went out, and he paused to strike another. The same moment, a knock came so quiet and stealthily as to be scarcely audible, sounded on the door. The matches fell from his hand and spilled in the passage. He stood motionless, his breath suspended. "'What's that?' cried the old woman, starting up. "'A rat,' said the old man in shaking tones. "'A rat it passed me on the stairs.' His wife sat up in bed listening, a loud knock resounding through the house. "'It's Herbert!' She ran to the door, but her husband was before her, and catching her by the armour, held her tightly. "'What are you going to do?' he whispered hoarsely. "'It's my boy, it's Herbert,' she cried, struggling mechanically. "'I forgot it was two miles away. "'What are you holding me for? Let go, I must open the door. "'For God's sake, don't let it in!' cried the old man, trembling. "'You're afraid of your own son,' she cried, struggling. "'Let me go, I'm coming, Herbert, I'm coming!' There was another knock, and another. The old woman, with a sudden wrench, broke free and ran from the room. Her husband followed to the landing and called after her appealingly, and she hurried downstairs. He heard the chain rattle back and the bolt drawn slowly and stiffly from the socket. And the old woman's voice strained and panting. The bolt, she cried loudly. Come down, I can't reach it. But her husband was on his hands and knees, groping wildly on the floor in search of the poor. If only he could find it before the thing outside got in. A perfect fusillade of knocks reverberated through the house and he heard the scraping of a chair as his wife put it down in the passage against the door. He heard the creaking of the bolt as it came slowly back and the same moment he found the monkey's paw and frantically breathed his third and last wish. The knocking ceased suddenly, although the echoes of it were still in the house. He heard the chair drawn back and the door opened. A cold wind rushed up the staircase and a long, loud wail of disappointment and misery from his wife gave him the courage to run down to her side and then to the gate beyond. The street lamp flickering opposite shone on a quiet and deserted road. Mm. I wonder, if you're in that situation, what would you wish for? just a moment we shall hear from Mr. Vincent Price himself as he brings to us episode of Suspense and the Name of the Beast. Enjoy. Suspense. News and views in the world of art. Yesterday at the Deauville Galleries, a record-breaking crowd attended one of the most sensational exhibitions of recent years. Masterpiece of the show is a portrait by James Dorrance titled The Name of the Beast. It's a savagely candid work, a face from which violence has shattered the last vestige of humanity. The tragic circumstances of the artist's death are too well known to review here, 
But at the same time, one cannot help speculating upon the essential mystery surrounding this remarkable canvas. What is the name of the beast? The name of the beast was Krebs, Elmer Krebs. I found him in an evil waterfront dive, took him to my studio and made the first sketch for the portrait that night. I gave him money and he promised to return the next day. When he didn't show up, I went in search of him. He wasn't hard to trace. My search came to an end in a squalid room of a waterfront hotel. Come in. He didn't look up when I entered the room, but continued to sit there on the sagging, dingy bedstead, holding his head in his hands and gently moaning. I crossed the room and raised the blind to let in the daylight. Then I saw it. Blood. On his hands, on his shirt front, in his hair and beard... A horrible, sticky mass of blood. You didn't show up for our appointment today. I'm the painter you met last night, remember? You were going to sit for a portrait. What do you want? You want your money back? Certainly not. I want to finish my painting. I want you to come back to the studio. You must be crazy. Look here, it's very important for me to finish that painting. I'll make it worth your while. Money... I don't need money. (laughs) Not anymore. Maybe I can help you in some other way. You're in some kind of trouble, that's obvious. What business is that of yours? You'd better wake up and pull yourself together. We'll have to get rid of those clothes some way or other. Well, I'll think of some way. What happened? I told you it's none of your business. Why don't you leave me alone? I'm sick. All that blood. The first thing we must do is clean up this mess here. Now get those clothes off. And the shoes, too. I'll make a parcel out of them and dump them in the river after dark. You'd better shave off that beard, too. They'll be looking for a man with a beard, you know. Who will? By the police, of course. What makes you so sure of that? I know more about you than you think I do. You're bluffing. Maybe, maybe not. But you're in no position to take chances. For all you know, I might be a witness. I might have seen you kill... Shut up! Temper, temper. I told you I'm sick. I'm liable to do anything. It wouldn't be smart for you to do anything to me, Elmer. I'm your only hope. You know that, don't you? You lost your head. You were clumsy. To get away with murder, you need a clear head. Look at the mistakes you've made already. Blood all over you. As good as a rope around your neck. Where did you hide the loot? That's what you're after. Then it was robbery. Somewhere close by, too. Couldn't have gone far with all that blood on you without attracting attention. Well? It was in a shop, I imagine. That means they probably won't find the body till Monday What's morning. What's all this third degree? You with the police? On the contrary, Elmer. I'm going to save you from the police. Huh? I told you. I want to finish painting that portrait of you. It don't make sense. All this just to paint some crazy picture. Ah, but what a picture, Elmer. I've waited 20 years to paint this picture. Everything I've ever painted has been merely the preparation for this. I've worked alone. Never exhibited a single canvas... Do you know what it is to work alone? Yeah, I know. Nobody knows your name, but one day, quite suddenly, a masterpiece explodes in the face of a jaded world. Like your murder, Elmer. After a life of petty crime, at last an act of yours really means something. Newspapers will headline it. The whole world will be clamoring to know your name. Exciting, isn't it? Exciting? Well, that's the way I feel about this portrait. I must finish the job. How do I know you won't take those clothes to the cops instead of dumping them? 
I'm taking a terrible chance walking out of here with a bundle of blood-stained clothes as it is. They'd fit me about as well as they fit you. Okay, that's fair enough. By the way, where... where did it happen? The hawk shop. Number 23, next to the alley. Was it necessary The old to... man came in and started firing a revolver right off. I don't pack no rod. There's nothing else to do. I grabbed the fire axe off the wall. Oh, my. And I suppose the police have your fingerprints on file? Yeah, I'd done time once. What did you do with the axe? Just dropped it there. I was sick, all that blood. I suppose you left nice red fingerprints all over the place. I didn't touch nothing. Maybe the windowsill going out. That's the first place they'll look. And you're obviously in no condition to go back what there now. What are you now. trying to do? Buy yourself a nice murder rap? My dear fellow, any intelligent man can get away with murder if he keeps his wits about him. You ought to be very grateful to me, Elmer. I'm going to take your clumsy crime and make it into a work of art. <laughs> The shoes of the beast were just my size. I wore them when I went on my errand that night. It was fortunate I did. Getting into the place was simple. It was an old-fashioned lock, and the skeleton key to my studio fitted it perfectly. The shop bell jangled when I opened the door. I made my way quickly along the dark rows of counters to the rear of the shop. A pair of dusty portiers provided it from the back room. I pulled them, too, behind me and snapped on my flashlight. The body, or what was left of it, lay in a heap in the center of the room. The floor, well, it was lucky I hadn't worn my own shoes. There would be tracks out of that place, red tracks. The axe lay near the old man's head. I picked up the axe and carried it over to the sink. I washed off what I could and smeared out the prints with the cotton gloves on my hands. Then I made a quick circuit of the room, taking in every surface. With the wet gloves, I smeared the prints on the safe handle, the windowsill, and the jimmy the murderer had so stupidly left behind him. Then I dropped the cotton gloves on the floor and left them there. No way to trace a pair of cheap cotton gloves. Now there was only one last thing to do. Walk around the block to dry the soles of those shoes and burn them in the stove when I got back to my studio. The handiwork of the beast would remain... But the name of the beast had been expunged. But I didn't burn the shoes, nor did I throw that bundle of clothing into the river as I had first planned to do that night. No, no. This would be an authentic portrait of a murderer in the very blood-stained garments of his crime. That will be all for today, Elmer. How much longer does this go on? Until the painting is finished. You can't set a time limit on the completion of a masterpiece, you know. Uh, don't look much like me. You've forgotten. I made the first sketch before you shaved off your beard. I don't like this picture. Did you have to paint in all that blood? My dear fellow, no one in the world would ever recognize you as the man with the beard in this painting. I don't painting. like this picture. I don't like staying here. Look, what about that stuff? When can I start cashing in on it? I should have thought I was paying you enough to live on. Suppose I want to get married. Well, that... What? Oh, good Lord, man. You mustn't even consider it. 
In the first place, I can't afford to support another person. Who's in the asking you to I... support anybody? I got that stuff, haven't I? Well, I'm going to cash it in, that's all. Listen to me, Elmer. If you try to unload as much as one piece of that loot, the police will be on your tail so fast. Oh, no, my friend. That stuff has got to stay where it is for some time to come. You just say that so I'll have to depend on you. So you can paint that lousy picture. Maybe. Oh, by the way, Elmer, I've never said anything about it before... But you never told me exactly what you did do with the loot. The suitcase, I told you. Yes, I know, in a locker at Grand Central. But where's the ticket? <laughs> That's one secret I'm keeping. Well, all right. But you will promise me not to unload those jewels. Not for a while She keeps yet. asking me, when are we going to get married? What am I going to tell her? Oh, by the way, who is the lucky lady? Jeannie. Her name's Jeannie Baker. Hey, wait a minute, though. She don't know anything about me. Not anything. If I ever catch you talking to her. So help me, I'll kill you. You say you're a friend of Elmer's? Well, not a friend exactly. I'm afraid this will be rather a shock to you. You're very close to Mr. Krebs. Well, we're engaged to be married. What is it? Is he in some kind of trouble? Are you a detective? Well, not exactly. You see, I represent the insurance company. What insurance State company? State indemnity. Our policyholder doesn't want to prosecute, but at the same prosecute? time... Prosecute? Well, after all, the jewels were of considerable value. What jewels? Why, the jewels in the suitcase, in the locker at Grand Central. He did leave the ticket with you, didn't he? Oh, well, yes, but, but I mean, he didn't tell me that... Well, he did say it was valuable and he didn't want to risk losing the ticket, but... I... How did you know about it? My dear Miss Baker, we insurance investigators have ways of finding out these things. Now then, if you're a sensible young woman, and I can see that you're not only a sensible young woman, but a very beautiful one as well. Mr. Dorrance, what has he done? Well, I don't think he regarded it as a theft exactly, more of a loan in all probability. After all, his aunt was a very old lady and... You mean he stole this jewelry from his aunt? Well, I wanted to spare you those exact words if I could. Actually, the lady would prefer not to prosecute. But of course, if we can secure the return of the property in no other way... I suppose I'd be arrested too as, as an accessory or something. I must say it was rather thoughtless of him to have involved you in this manner. How do I know you're what you say you are? I have credentials, of course. But I would rather take care of this unofficially, especially since this little talk with you... You're much too fine a person to be involved in a sordid affair like this. I don't even know that suitcase has any jewels in it. Then supposing we go there together and get it, Jeannie? Well, now... Now, let's have a look. How, how are we going to... Well, I, I think I have a key here that'll open it. must be worth a fortune. Yes, they are, Miss Baker. You understand our concern? Yes. Close it up. I, I don't want to look at it anymore. I'd like to have spared you this. You understand, of course, that I wouldn't dream of prosecuting. Not now that I've met you. I don't know how to thank you, Mr. Dorrance. This, this is such a shock to me. How could he? How oh, could he? There, there. 
You're not the first innocent girl to be deceived by an unscrupulous fellow like that. How did you happen to become involved with him in the first place? Oh, I, I was lonely. I, I have no friends here, and he came into the cafe where I wait to... Oh, there, there now. You won't let anything happen to me. I promise you, I'll do anything to keep you from knowing another moment's unhappiness. <laughs> That night, I worked feverishly, like a man possessed. But as I worked, an uncanny change came over the man in the portrait. There was something about it, something that terrified and at the same time fascinated me. Yet the more I tried to make it come right, the less it really looked like Krebs. I began to regret I'd had him shave his beard, in spite of the risk involved. Being clean-shaven altered a man's appearance more than I thought. But that wasn't the real difficulty. The real trouble was Jeannie Baker. How could she ever have loved a beast like Krebs? A girl so gentle, so lovely. I tried not to think of her. But the image of Jeannie stood between me and the canvas. And the painting just would not come right. And as Krebs sat there sullenly posing for me, his eyes began to grow more and more cunning and suspicious. As though he could actually read my thoughts. He would jump up every time I laid down my brush and circle the portrait like an infuriated animal. Until finally, around four in the morning, he dropped off to snoring. I let him stay there. In the dawn light, I looked at the picture for the last time and draped the easel to shut it out of my sight. My masterpiece, for which I had become accessory after the fact of one murder and, and sowed the seeds of a second was, I knew it now, deep in my heart, a failure. I was obsessed now with only one resolve, to prevent the second murder, which by some instinct I knew was in Krebs' mind. At whatever cost to myself, no harm must come to Jeannie. I've been told that artists are full of romantic notions, and the Bureau has dealt with a number of them in this neighborhood, as you can well imagine. But I must say that of all the pipe dreams that have been brought to me, yours is the most fantastic. Oh, but listen, Inspector, you've got to believe me. That girl's life is in danger. Yeah, we're checking on that. Now, let's check on a few other things, Mr. Dorrance. You say that on the night of the 12th, you met this man Krebs at a place called Louis. Yes, sir. And afterwards, you went with him to your studio and made a sketch of him for a portrait. All right, so far, so good. He promised to return the following day and sit again for the painting. He failed to show up, so you sought him out at his hotel. (laughs) Now the story really becomes incredible. He tells you he's committed a ghastly murder. He's covered in blood. You offer to help him get away with the murder in order to finish the portrait. (laughs) Oh, now really, Mr. Dorrance. You painters need publicity as bad as all that. But, Inspector, I tell you, I have all the evidence. Where? At my studio. Where's this man Grebs? Except for the portrait you say you painted of him, I can't find a shred of evidence that he exists. Now, just a minute. Yes, Sergeant? They've picked up the girl. Good. Send her in. Oh, she'll tell you. She'll tell you who Krebs is. Oh, come in, Miss Baker. We won't detain you long. Miss Baker, do you know this man? I say, do you know this man? It's all right, my dear. Speak up. Yes. His name is Elmer Krebs. A few minutes later, they let me go, dismissing me as a harmless crackpot. 
Jeannie walked out of the station with me, clinging to my arm with solicitude, as one might act towards a beloved and mentally ill relative. Why did you do it? Elmer came to my apartment last night. He told me the whole story. But then why... He was boasting, boasting about how he's pinned the crime on you. Don't you see? Everything you've done to save him has incriminated you. The bloodstained clothes, even the, the loot. Oh, I'm tired. I don't know... Oh, listen to me. He'll always be a threat to us, to our happiness. He's safe. The police don't even know he exists. They don't even know what he looks like. There's still the portrait. It's not a masterpiece, but they can identify him from it. I see. Darling, you, you didn't mind my rechristening you? You once loved a man named Krebs. And I still love a man named Krebs. Then it's all right. For that, I'd do anything. Put this in your overcoat pocket. It'll keep you safe, darling. What? Oh, no, no, I... It'll keep you safe, darling. <laughs> He was there in my studio when I got in that evening, waiting for me. I had more or less expected it. I hadn't expected to find him in such a cheerful frame of mind. He had pulled the drape off of the painting and was walking around it, viewing it from every angle. Hi, Dorrance. How did you get in here? Through the door. No more window jobs for me, Dorrance. And a picture. How about that? Got a new model, huh? What? The picture? Oh, it's no good. By the way, it's finished now. You won't need to come here anymore. You don't say. I'll get you the suitcase. I suppose it'll be safe for you to cash that stuff. I already found time. the suitcase, Dorrance. Oh? Well, take it along with you then. It's over there on the table. I opened it up. Well? Did you think I'd take it without checking on the contents? What are you talking What'd about? What'd you do with the rocks, Dorrance? Rocks? You took the rocks, the jewelry. There's nothing left there but the settings, a pile of junk. Listen, Krebs, I swear I never opened that suitcase but once, just after we took it out of the we... locker. She's in it with you. Listen, Krebs, you can think whatever you want to about me, but keep Jeannie out of it. I keep Jeannie out of it? That's a laugh. I mean what I say. Krebs, where are you going? Oh, our place. If she has those rocks, I'm going to get Krebs, come back here. I've got a job to do. Krebs, if you go out of that door, I warn you. All right. I dragged his body inside the door and left it there. Then I dropped the revolver Jeannie had given me back in my overcoat pocket and left my studio. For the last time, as I closed the door on the room, it seemed that the face in the portrait was grinning at me in hideous mockery. I had meant to go straight to the police and give myself up, but I must have known in my heart that I wouldn't. Instead, I walked, and my feet took me almost against my will to the house on Grove Street, the house where Jeannie lived. I had roused her from sleep, and she seemed rather cross. What's the big idea, barging in here this time of night? I had to see you, Jeannie. Well? That was an unlucky name you gave me, Jeannie. What's happened? I shot him. You gave me a murderer's name, and now I am a murderer. So you really did it. I wondered if you'd have the guts. Jeannie! Oh, what do you want me to do, put on black and cry myself to death? You loved him once. Who said so? You were going to marry him. Maybe. I thought he was smart once. I said I'd marry him if he pulled a really big job. I might have kept my word, but he bungled it. What's worse, he involved me. When I found out, he'd planted that stuff on me. You knew. You knew all the time. Oh, so what? So what? You'll get your cut. Oh, Krebs was right. You did take those stones. And I killed a man for you. 
to save you. What did you do with the gun? It's in my overcoat pocket. I was going to the police. Oh, you sap. Why didn't you leave the gun there? Make it look like suicide. It was, in a way, wasn't it, Jeannie? I'm Krebs now. Dorrance is dead. You planned it very nicely. Oh, stop. Stop trying to be deep. Doesn't matter what your name is. Either way, you've messed it up. Anybody have a key to your place? No. And we still have time. Time for what? The body! Any intelligent person can get away with murder if he keeps his wits about him. You told Elmer that. Yes, I told Elmer that. You're scared to go back there, aren't you? Do you want me to do it for you? No. No, I'll do it. I must do it. Here. Mustn't forget your overcoat. No. No, I mustn't forget my overcoat. It'll keep me... It'll keep me safe. Goodbye, Jeannie. Two stiffs. Hmm. What a shambles. Looks as if he shot this guy and then bumped himself off. Who are they? I don't know the other one. This is a guy that came into headquarters Saturday. You know, the artist. Huh? Well, that must have been something to his story after all. Uh, here's a note he left. You see. Here, Inspector, the portrait I told you about is standing on the easel facing the window so you can see it in the light. James Dorrance. Uh, I guess this must be it here. He said it identified the murderer. Is it a good likeness? Yeah, I don't know. You look at it. Uh. Why, it's a woman. Yeah, it's that dame we picked up. The little waitress. Hey, but look, it's it's got men's clothes on. Bloody. And the way he's made the face all twisted and ugly. She was a good-looking kid. Yeah, she was. He must have been cracked. I guess he must have been. A thing like that makes you wonder, don't it? Yeah, a thing like that makes you wonder. <laughs> The discerning art lover will recognize Doran's painting as more than a mere portrait. It's the human soul stripped naked, and its dark and secret, deep and secret places shown in all their morbid, brooding fascination. But still, one cannot help wondering, what is the name of the beast? Did the woman in the portrait exist, or was she only the creature of the artist's fevered imagination? Our only clue is in a quotation which the artist caused to be printed in the exhibition catalog. And he causeth all to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell save that he had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of man.
shall throw a witch on the fire. <laughs> oh, do pipe down there, witch! That's better. All right, shall we continue? Let's go to the body bags. <laughs> uh, our mail bags. We have a uh, we have a letter from one of our listeners, Greg S. Greg writes, in 2017, my family purchased a house which was built by a retired man who people refer to as Uncle Jimmy. He died in the house of natural causes. After living in the house for a few days, we noticed that a couple of doors would sometimes slowly swing open. The house also had an intercom system which was connected to an in-wall stereo. One day while in the bedroom, I heard classical music playing. I'd hooked up our wireless speakers earlier in the week and thought maybe my wife had turned on some music. She hadn't, and the music turned out to be playing through the in-wall speaker in the bedroom. We figured it was Uncle Jimmy wanting to play some music for us. Over the next few weeks, the in-wall radio would start to play classical and jazz music at various times in different rooms and sometimes even in multiple ones. One evening... I had an indie rock playlist playing on our wireless system and it promptly turned off. A few minutes later, classical music started playing through the in-wall system. Evidently, Uncle Jimmy didn't like my taste in music. One morning, the radio in the bedroom came on at 6am and a story started playing about National Science Day. This was odd since. In the past, the radio had only played music and had never come on early in the morning. I turned the wall speaker off as the DJs were talking about NASA. Then I remembered that Uncle Jimmy retired from NASA a few years before he built our house. We really think he was trying to get us to appreciate his love of science. Well, thank you, Greg S. Remember if you... Well, I kept his anonymity. Remember if you do have any stories you'd like to share with us, any experiences you've had... Uh, you can email through to us at info at iplradio.org.au. And if you wish to be interviewed, we can organise that as well. Oh, we've got time for a couple more stories. This one is The Seventh Barn. There was a wealthy farmer who owned a lot of land in Ohio. He built a new barn on his property every time his wife had a baby. He named the barns after each of his children, and by the time this story takes place, they had six kids and were expecting number seven. However, the farmer's wife died in childbirth, and so did her unborn baby. The farmer went insane with grief and couldn't tend to his farm. The family had no money, and the farm started going under. They say that one night, in the depths of his madness and despair, the farmer took an axe and led his children out to the barns, where he murdered them one by one. He buried each of their bodies in the six barns that had been named after them. Then the farmer went to the seventh barn, where he hung himself. As the story goes, all of the barns were eventually torn down and the land was sold off, all except for the seventh barn. Nobody wanted to buy the land because of what had happened there, so it was abandoned and soon fell into disrepair. They say if you go to that barn at night, you can see the ghost of the farmer hanging from the rafters, his body swinging back and forth in the wind. 
dwelling on his terrible crime for all eternity. No one was ever really sure where the seventh barn was located, although it was definitely in, in Ohio. Some said it was the Kranz farm in Cuyahoga Valley, and others said it was at top of the world in Northampton. In 1997, a local Ohio teacher claimed that after a lot of research, he had finally managed to track down the real location of the infamous seventh barn. He said that no other barns had ever actually been torn down. The land had just been divided up and sold off and the barns had simply been incorporated into neighbouring farms. According to the teacher, he was able to pinpoint the, the correct location because of all the barns on neighbouring properties had nameplates above their doors with the names of children engraved on them. The teacher and his son set out at night to visit the, the barn bringing a video camera with them in the hopes of capturing some paranormal activity. The next morning, the teacher's wife reported her husband and son missing. Police found their abandoned car by the roadside. While searching the area, they entered a barn in a nearby field and found the dead bodies of the teacher and his son hanging from the rafters. bit of a story about something that happened to me many years ago. It was in uh, 2000. This is a true story. I grew up in uh, in South Australia, uh, in Adelaide. And when I was a young child, my parents took took me and my brother to uh, a restaurant called the Barn. Uh, you can look look this restaurant up the barn in South Australia is it, it's there now by this stage by the time of this story I was living in Melbourne and a uh, I was uh, I was in a relationship with a lady who, who was um, I, I was divorced I had uh, I had my two daughters and she had uh, two children of her own we decided that we were going to drive from Melbourne to Adelaide. It only takes a day to, to do that. And we arrived in Adelaide and while in Adelaide we decided we were going to uh, uh, we were going to go to this restaurant, the barn. Now I knew that the barn was haunted. I'd been told about it when I was a child. And I decided I was going to tell uh, tell this lady and the four children I was going to tell them all about the ghost and that they might see some stuff happening. We'd parked in the in the car park. There was only one solitary light in the car park and we were parked directly under it. And while I was sitting there and I was telling them all this story and they, they wouldn't believe me. They, they said that I was full of crap. And I, uh, I said, no, I said, the barn is haunted. You can, we'll ask when we go inside. And as I said, though, I looked over at the fence uh, and there was a, a shadow cast from the light which uh, I couldn't see any anything to cause this shadow but the shadow looked like the, the figure of a person hanging from a noose when we went inside I said to uh, I said to the waiter I said, I said look you know, they, they don't believe me that this place is haunted can you tell them all about the ghost 
And the waiter said, yes, it's definitely haunted. Every morning that they, they will come in and they will find uh, um, cartons of wine piled up in the middle of the cellar in a pillar. I asked, I said, um, who is the ghost? And he said, well, back before it was a restaurant, it used to be a farm. And in the farm was a barn, which is why the, this restaurant gets its name. Like I said, look it up. You'll find it. The Barn, South Australia. And I, and I said, well, um, okay, so who's the ghost? The ghost was the, uh, was the previous owner. She had hung herself in the stables. I said, well, where's the, where are the stables? Where were the, where were the stables located? And he said to me, he said, where the car park is now. So it is my opinion that I definitely saw the shadow of a ghost that particular night. That's a true story. Alright, we have time. I see we have time for one more story. Now this is one that I have penned and I call it Best Friends Forever. The house stood proud, two stories of living area plus a basement and an attic. It was huge. Simon didn't want to move the house. He was leaving his friends behind and the school wasn't starting back for another six weeks. It was summer vacation. When the car his father was driving, towing the trailer with all of their possessions, pulled into the driveway, his mother in the passenger seat tried to encourage his excitement. Look at it, Simon, she said. I don't like it. He'll be, he'll be okay, his father told his mother. I'm going to make him friends at school. You will, don't worry, his father said. They climbed out of the car and Simon stared at the attic window, its single dark eye staring down at him. Hey, Simon, grab a box of your toys and take it inside. Huh? He turned, he said, turning to his father. Come on. Simon grabbed a box and tried to lift it. He struggled under the weight and dropped it on the grass. It was too heavy for his six-year-old little body. Here, take this one, it's lighter, his father said, handing him a smaller box. He carried the box into the house. A layer of dust had settled on the banister that ran up to the second floor. He climbed the stairs with his box and stood at the landing, staring up to the attic. Hey, Si, come on, this is your room, his father called to him. He walked into the room while still looking over his shoulder toward the uppermost level. What's up there? The attic. What a playroom, mate. Cool, I just need a friend to play with now, he said, still disgruntled at leaving his one best friend behind after a few days, all the boxes had been emptied and the furniture had been arranged. The kitchen was the first to be set up with only two glasses and a coffee cup broken in the mood between Melbourne and Perth. Simon still felt the loss of leaving his best friend behind in Melbourne, 3,000 kilometres away. He was putting some of his clothes in his drawers when he heard a thump from upstairs. The attic. He stood at the bottom of the stairs and looked to the attic. A door at the top opened. He could swear he heard a giggle. Simon's mother called him for dinner about half an hour later. Normally he was the first at the table, always claiming to be starving, as kids often do. 
Simon, she called, standing at the foot of the stairs. Still, he didn't respond. She climbed the stairs and called once more. Simon, get down to the dinner table now. He wasn't in his bedroom. His mother climbed the stairs to the upper floor, to the attic. Opening the door, she found him asleep in a corner. Simon, are you all right? He opened his eyes. I fell asleep. Is dinner ready? He asked. Yes, hurry downstairs before it gets cold. She gave him a pat on the backside and he trotted downstairs to the dinner table, followed close behind by his mother. What were you doing in the attic? She asked as they sat at the table. Just playing with my new friend, he said. His father gave an approving chuckle. He has an imaginary friend, he said to his wife. He's not imaginary, Dad. He's real. Oh, my bad, his father said, encouraging him. Does his friend have a name? Simon's mother asked. Patrick, Simon said. Oh, Patrick. And where does Patrick live, she asked. In the playroom upstairs. He's always lived here. Well, if he's living here, maybe he can play, pay some board, his father said, jokingly. Daddy, he's only eight years old, Simon said. He looked toward the empty seat next to him, as if someone was sitting there. Eight and a half, he said to his father, correcting himself. After dinner, Simon asked if he could play in the attic with Patrick before bed. His mother agreed, and he raced upstairs to play. As Simon's father climbed the stairs to fetch him, he could hear Simon laughing and talking, and for a moment he could have sworn he heard another child whisper. But there was nobody there except Simon when he opened the door to the attic. Time for bed, mister, his father said. See you tomorrow, Patrick, Simon said as he descended the stairs to his room. Every uh, Every day Simon would hurriedly finish his breakfast and race to the attic to play with his unseen friend. When called for lunch, he would refuse, so his mother took his lunch to the attic. You have to eat, she said. Can Patrick have something to eat too, he asked. His mummy doesn't give him lunch. Of course, his mother said, humouring Simon about his imaginary friend. From then on, she would bring two sandwiches and two apples to the attic for Simon and his so-called friend. She didn't mind, though. The food had all been eaten by the time she collected the plates. For the next few weeks, Simon was beginning to look pale and drawn out. Despite eating regularly and snacking between meals like he always did and the extra lunches, he looked thinner. His clothing was loose on him and his mother began to worry. She took him to the doctor's surgery. As she waited, she read a National Geographic magazine and flipped the magazine open to a photo of a child from Afghanistan when she looked away to her own son. Despite all the blood tests they took and the various scans and other tests, the doctor could find no cause for his rapid weight loss. His appetite was typical for someone his age. He was just losing weight. Fast. We simply cannot find anything wrong with your child, the doctor said. Well, what about cancer? Could it be cancer? Not a sign. Nothing. Bulimia? I don't think so. You said he asks for seconds, even eats two lunches? People with bulimia don't tend to do that. No, just can't figure this one out. The doctor asked about the sort of food Simon was eating and was told that his mother was serving them all the usual. Meat, usually mints or sausages, vegetables, corn, tomato, carrots, peas, cereal for breakfast, sandwiches for lunch. The test results did show his nutrition was extremely low, but there didn't seem any reason for this since he was eating everything and the food was perfectly nutritious. Simon would devour every meal and often had seconds. He was still losing weight. 
This went on for another another week and another. His mother was in a panic. What was wrong with her child? Still, he seemed to find comfort in talking to his imaginary friend Patrick every day. At least his spirits are high, his father said. He wasn't vomiting or anything. He was simply losing weight rapidly. His mother called the doctor again. She was in a panic. The doctor said he didn't do house calls, but Simon's mother was insistent. She cried into the phone, sobbing hysterically. The doctor agreed to visit and arrived an hour later. Laying in his bed, Simon, who was now weaker than he had ever been, with sunken eyes, pronounced ribcage, almost non-existent muscle tissue, was resembling the child from Afghanistan that was in the National Geographic in the doctor's office. He would slowly turn his head to the corner of the room past the doctor and his gaze would slowly cross from one side of the room to the other. He giggled. What are you laughing at at the sigh? his mother asked. Patrick pulled a funny face, he said. Patrick? The doctor asked, looking at the mother. Imaginary friend, doctor. Simon invented him shortly after we moved here. May I speak with you outside? The doctor asked. They both left Simon in the bedroom while they went into the hall to talk. I've only ever seen this once before. Malnutrition, the doctor said. But that's impossible. Like I told you, Simon eats like there's no tomorrow. Simon's mother said, he is always eating. Came a scream from Simon's bedroom and his mother and the doctor ran in, finding Simon unconscious, buckled over as if in pain. His pulse was faint, his temperature was low. The doctor tried everything to get the child to regain consciousness, but nothing worked. He was unresponsive. About a week later in the hospital, Simon's mother and father were faced with a grim decision to remove the tubes feeding Simon and to unplug the life support machine. He had slipped into a coma and would never regain consciousness again. The specialists... The surgeons, the doctors all concurred that even if he did regain his consciousness, consciousness due to malnutrition, he would never function normally again. His mother cried, tears running down her cheeks as her husband flicked the switch to turn the machine off. Tears were welling in his eyes. The grieving parents put the house on the market and it soon sold. They would return to Melbourne the following month. The new owners arrived a few days later and out from the back seat of the car clung a little girl around eight years old. She looked up at the attic. What is it? her mother asked, following her gaze to the attic window. I thought I saw some boys up there watching me. From the attic, Simon and Patrick's ghosts both became excited. They never had a girl as a friend. the pity we have run out of time well let us put this witch out and we shall meet again next time until then beware of those who try to befriend you they may just want to keep you to themselves for eternity <laughs> good night and pleasant screams In tonight's episode of The Midnight Hour, stories included 
An Occurrence at Our Creek Bridge by Ambrose Bierce. The Monkey's Paw by W.W. W. Jacobs. The Seventh Barn, Best Friends Forever by Branton Fole. And a special thank you goes out to Greg S. Remember, if you wish to, email through to the Midnight Hour with any stories, with any uh, personal experiences you've had. If you wish to be interviewed, you may. You can email through to info at iplradio.org.au. Coming to you from Rockingham, IPL Radio.